You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So I think we'll find the eyepiece for my telescope. In this cabinet here, it's big. Well, yeah, but I mean, this cabinet dates from the 19th century. It was designed to hold all the riding tack from some big horse farm down in southwest Virginia. You know, saddles, bits, bridles. Well, let's see what we can find, Seth, and we can just toss other stuff out along the way, okay? Well, I don't think there's anything that's going to need tossing. Okay, maybe a few items. I have some boxes here. We can give it to the Detritus Preservation Society or something like that. So all these boxes, let's just fill them up. Hey, my steam-powered gyroscope. What's this? Yeah, I was trying to build a clock, but I, I, I couldn't find something that would work as a pendulum. Wow, it's a real hodgepodge here. Kind of a pastiche, a melange. Kind of a okay. combo platter. Sorry. Well, yeah, be careful there. You can hurt yourself if that falls on you. From Big Picture Science, I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. And I collect stuff. Maybe too much of a rat pack. <laughs> no, that's not possible. It's never too much. Okay, so we're looking for an eyepiece for your telescope. And you need this for what, Seth? To look at yeah. a planet or well, something? Well, look, here's the problem. You see, my high-powered eyepieces all have small barrels. 0.965 inch, that was a standard from microscope days. But my new telescope uses one and a quarter inch okay, that's eyepiece. A lot, that's a lot of details. Oh, okay. I'm, you're losing me on all the eye-quarter piece okay, stuff. Okay, well, in other words, I need the eyepiece because it has more magnification. And I want to see the storms on Jupiter so I can describe it at this weekend's star party. You can see the storms on Jupiter from here? Yeah, well, I mean, not details, but yeah, you can see the bands and all. should what, be a gas. What's it look like? Uh, little purple bands. Oh, hey. <laughs> you have a lot of stuff in this cabinet. Yeah, yeah, well, like this. Look, it's the harmonica I bought at Coney Island. Harmonica? Wait, what are these? Are these VCR tapes? Well, yeah. What does the label say there? Uh, it says Cosmos 1980. You taped Cosmos? You had a VCR back I, then? I, I was an early adapter. Yes. In fact, I still have a VCR. The first VHS machines, Molly, came out in the late 1970s. You know, Cosmos was a really great series. Yep. 13 parts, hosted by astronomer Carl Sagan and written by him with the help of his wife, Ann Druyan, and some others. I, I remember talking to some of the production people about it. It was the single most popular TV series ever about science. Let's see if I can get in here and see these tapes. Well, I didn't watch it. My brother did. He really loved it. I wish I had seen it. Yeah. This is hard to open. You taped it pretty well. You know, one of my favorite episodes was about the question of who speaks for Earth in case we make contact with extraterrestrials. How would we explain all this to a dispassionate extraterrestrial observer? What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? We have heard the rationales offered by the superpowers. We know who speaks for the nations. But who speaks for the human species? Who speaks 
for Earth. Not everybody knows that Sagan was also a passionate environmentalist and would talk about how we misuse Earth's resources. I'm really sorry I missed the series. Yeah, but you can watch the sequel. There's a sequel to Cosmos? Yep. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson is making a 13-part sequel to Cosmos, and it's going to air in 2013. That sounds great, although it can't be easy to step into Carl Sagan's shoes. They're huge shoes to fill. Hardly anyone in the science profession did what he did. There's some cultural bias against it in the, you know, if you're a serious scientist, you shouldn't be talking to the public. There was a lot of criticism when he made his first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's not the proper platform for scientists. And so his efforts to bring the frontier of science to the public not only served the curiosity of the public, but it served the scientific community as well. Since then, there are many of us on the landscape that he cleared, yourself included, of course. And so I'm happy to report that what was a one-man show back then, now there's at least a dozen of us who are active on documentaries, on TV, you channel surf, you'll catch one of us talking about the universe, and I think that's great. What that means is the task for the next generation cosmos is a little bit different because I don't need to teach you textbook science. There's a lot of textbook science in the original cosmos, but that's not what you remember most. What most people who remember the series remember most is the effort to present science in a way that has meaning to you that could influence your conduct as a citizen of the nation and of the world, especially of the world. So we, we're reviewing all those 13 episodes, finding the parts that were most stirring and most compelling, and transferring them into a 21st century version, a 21st century reboot of what Cosmos was in 1980. Now, that's a whole generation ago. Well, this was a 13-part series, I think, the original. And yours will, as It'll I also be 13 also parts. 13 that's part. correct. Okay. But We're is, no less ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's obviously a lucky number. Is it a sequel in the way that, for example, The Empire Strikes Back was to Star Wars? I mean, is, is it going to pick up where the big one left off, as it were? Are you going to sort of redo many of the subjects, but with the modern perspective and uh, what we know that we've learned in the meantime that we didn't know back then? It's a little bit of both, but it's probably best to say that if Cosmos had never been done in 1980 and we were doing it for the first time now, we are exploring the landscape of what the nation and the world needs to hear and understand about how science works, just as that exercise was conducted back when they researched what should go in the original Cosmos. And so we want to make a program that is not simply a sequel to the first, but issues forth from the times in which we are making it so that it, it matters to those who, who is this emergent 21st century audience. If you just redid the original, then you'd get stuck in some older habits or some older editing paces. Some, you wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But that's not to say that we're going to ignore the timeless elements of what made the original one work. We're going to see if there are ways to sort of update those or bring them into a 21st century sensibility of graphics and special effects. I cannot resist asking, uh, you know, the phrase billions and billions, although I think Sagan said he had never really said that in the yeah, series. It was Johnny Carson who said it. Yeah, yeah. Billions and billions. But mm -hmm. anyhow, it is now associated with that series. Are you going to come up with your own, your own catchphrase? Of I mean, course. We're trying to find a way for me to say trillions and trillions. I was just going to suggest with all the planets out there, there are a trillion planets in our galaxy. What, what I will so find a way to do that. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's got to fit, of course. But uh, And by the way, I, I should say that the two of the original three collaborators of that landmark series 
uh, obviously minus Carl, are part of this project. So it's Andrian and Steve Soder. And, and we have a very talented uh, business partner in this, uh, Mitch Kennold. And so the four of us are sort of birthing this in, now in collaboration with uh, the efforts and investments from Fox. And that raised more than a few eyebrows when we made that announcement. And I had heard people saying, Fox, they, they don't know anything about science. And, I, and then I said to them, that's why it's on Fox. So that, that's who, that's the audience you want to reach, are those who never really thought to think about science. And Fox doesn't have much experience making documentaries, but we do. And so um, the freedom to do what is necessary to capture a 21st century audience the way the original Cosmos captured its audience, that's the freedoms we needed and got. But when you think of Carl Sagan hosting Cosmos, are there any scenes or episodes that particularly stick in your mind as, you know, gosh, you know, I still remember when he was, I don't know, talking about the library at Alexandria or, or, you know, something that really stuck with you? Yeah, I think that two things. Uh, You had to love that evolution sequence, which is a single line drawing with some, uh, I think it was a Bach fugue playing in the background as it went from a single-celled organism up to modern mammals. And that was, it was simple, it was clear, it was direct, and uh, we're going to find a way to to capture that, but with the the modern sense of the complexity and the interest that the tree of life has given uh, modern-day biologists. And there's also, you can't forget the cosmic calendar, where the Big Bang begins on January 1st, and modern day is December 31st. You get to see the relative duration of many episodes in the history of the world. There's going to be a way to do that that is that is deserving of modern techniques for CGI and, and other ways to represent the universe as this living, breathing thing going on as it layers onto this calendar. Do you have the impression that young people are still interested in outer space, or is it all you know inner space, social media, computers texting their friends all the time. Well, of course, the, the task, my task, I think, as, an, as a scientist and as an educator, is to try to exploit the texting, the Facebook, the Twitter streams, try to exploit those media in a way that can serve the growth of science literacy of the nation. So, so I, I have a Twitter stream where I, I don't tweet what I'm having for breakfast or even where I am. Not n- normally, but what I do tweet are cosmic tidbits, you know, cosmic cosmic, uh, the meanderings of my brain as I think about the cosmos throughout the day. And it's developed a following that is, I think, hungry for more and more of this. And I, I think it's possible for someone to have a scientific curiosity awakened within them. You just have to know how to how to wake them up. <laughs> they can either be groggy or say, hey, a new day is here with new things for me to learn. And so if I can plug my Twitter handle, it's just at Neil Tyson, N-E-I-L, T-Y-S-O-N. And so I'm uh, happy to to have more if you're interested in just random stuff about the universe. And uh, finally, Neil, when can we expect to see this hitting the glowing phosphors on my TV set? <laughs> Are they phosphors? <laughs> uh, you must not have a plasma TV. You, you, my, my television was actually requisitioned by the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> so you still watch the tube. That's yeah, what, that's it, it really is a tube, yes. It's like, what's a tube, you know? <laughs> uh, so YouTube is quite retro in its name in that regard. I always thought that the, the magazine Wired should change their name to Unwired. No one wants to be wired anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. So uh, we're working on it now. It's, uh, we're scripting it. And we go into production uh, in a few months. So likely, uh, we don't have an exact date yet, but certainly in 2013. So it's still a little while, but we, have, we all have a lot of anticipation for it. That's a pretty aggressive production schedule. Yes, it is. It is. And, uh, and it's, it's going to be heavy. 
Neil Tyson, thanks very much for talking with me. Thanks for having me back on. I look forward to it again. Johannes Kepler wrote, We do not ask for what useful purpose the birds do sing, for song is their pleasure since they were created for singing. Similarly, we ought not to ask why the human mind troubles to fathom the secrets of the heavens. The diversity of the phenomena of nature is so great and the treasures hidden in the heavens so rich, precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. Well, we don't have to wait until 2013 for Neil's perspective on the cosmos, or at least his perspective on space. Yeah, why is that? Because you know why that is. He has a book out, Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier, and you can probably get a glimpse of him if you're a lucky tourist going through the American Museum of Natural History in New York, or maybe even if you're a resident of New York and you're not a tourist and you're going through the museum, you might see him there. (laughs) Well, I am looking forward to the new cosmos, because after all, Molly, a lot has happened in cosmology and science since that original vintage series in 1980. But you know what? It's not as vintage as all the stuff that's crammed here in your cabinet. Look at all those boxes up there. Okay, this box says inflatable muskrat. Yeah, well, that's probably because that's what's in it. Okay, I'm not going to pursue that. Ooh, and here's a movie poster. Cool. I wonder what movie it is. I got a lot of these. Let's pull this one out. Even for movies I never saw. Oh, it's kind of stuck. Let's see here. The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Cool. Yeah, 1963. Careful you don't rip it, Molly. Okay. Okay. You you see the actual title there is X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Oh, I see. It's a little repetitive. Dr. Xavier, yeah. He was fiddling around with human vision, and things went horribly wrong, Mm. as they often do. (laughs) Or there'd be no plot. Keeper toss. Toss, right? We should. No, that's a keeper. It's an original. It's worth, well, I don't know what it's worth. It's worth a lot to someone. It's a potpourri show on Big Picture Science. And now, our radio show staff on the eclectic benefits of becoming a Team SETI member. I like pineapple pizza, fractal equations, and sleeping until noon on weekends. The dictionary says a librarian is a person trained in library science and engaged in library service. The opening line of Anna Karenina read backwards. Way own it's in unhappy is family unhappy. Every alike, all our families happy. The first whale I ever met was named Stinky. Picture this, my version of a traditional clog dance. (laughs) You heard it here. Joining Team SETI is easy to do at SETI.org. And when you do, you support researchers who are, as we speak, investigating fundamental questions about the nature of our cosmos. Your support ensures that their scientific work continues. Plus, you'll also get a photo of this radio show staff. And now for the grand finale. By sending an email after you join to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. I'll alternate anagrams for Team SETI with names of fruit. Estimate, cherry, mediast, kumquat, easement, apple, teams tie, orange. SETI.org and bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Banana, ma tease it, melon. There's nothing in my cabinet of wonders quite like it. Apricot, eight met is peach, state me I cranberry, east met I grapefruit. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, 
the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. Okay, we're making our way through this cabinet of vintage old vintage technical memorabilia looking for my telescope eyepiece adapter and finding a lot of truly excellent stuff along the way. Yeah, and throwing out a lot of stuff as well, which is good. Is this a snorkel? Yeah. Now, I tried snorkeling once, but you know, I saw an interesting fish about 30 feet down, went after it and nearly swallowed the ping pong ball. <laughs> you know, I did some diving a long time ago, although I only went to the shallow areas in the ocean and down to the bottom of a lake. I mean, I've never done any deep sea diving, but still it's a whole world that opens up to you and it's quiet, it's dark, and you see lots of fish that you don't see, say, on land. <laughs> Well, that's, that's true of most fish, unless they're being served up. It sounds a bit like going into space, I imagine. I mean, except for the fish part. I never got down that deep in any body of water. You know, it is like space. In fact, the Navy tried to create the equivalent, the marine equivalent, of the International Space Station about 50 years ago. Oh, Sea Lab. Yeah, I kind of remember that. Was the idea being that water is a great way to simulate zero gravity? <laughs> well, it wasn't that they were trying to do further preparations for going into space. It was really to understand what was at the bottom of the ocean. There were a lot of big scientific questions, and also there were military applications. And they just generally wanted scientists to be able to live and work under the sea. But for all that Sea Lab achieved, the project was basically forgotten, except a journalist named Ben Hellworth has written a new book about Sea Lab. And, and... Like the uh, poster that you have here? Oh, for Thunderball, James Bond film, 1965. It had rocket guns, an x-ray desk, and my favorite, a jetpack. Right. Okay. But the point is that Sea Lab got its start from another daring adventurer, Bond, George Bond. George Bond was a great American character, and really it was fun for me to introduce him in the book. He began his life and career as, as a country doctor in the backwoods of the Blue Ridge Mountains, of all places. Not a likely place for a guy to be interested in the ocean to get started, but that's where he got his start. And this is in the 1950s? 40s. By the early 50s, he's still there, but at that point he joins the Navy and got trained as a diver as part of his medical training. Diving was sort of trapped in its 19th century origins, and what that meant was that you couldn't dive very deep and you couldn't stay very long, and this is what was fascinating to uh, Dr. Bond as a scientist and as a kind of adventuresome fellow, which is, well, why can't we stay very long? And as a matter of fact, if we could, wouldn't it be great? We could set up bases on the seafloor and use them to uh, pursue scientific missions or military purposes or industrial purposes. If only we could get there. Now, at this time, how far had anyone ever dove and how long were they able to stay underwater? What were the limits? There's a little variation in that, but let's say around 100 or 150 feet would be even for a, a Navy diver, sort of a typically deep dive. There were a number of extreme cases where people were pushing those limits to several hundred feet and not always with good results. But the duration is a very important part of that calculus, is even when somebody did successfully, let's say, dive to three, four, or 500 feet, they had to come back within minutes of having reached their depth. 
that was the norm of the time. It was not believed that you could stay any longer or it would take you so long to decompress on the way back that, you know, you'd probably just freeze or starve in the process. Were people using scuba equipment? I mean, had scuba been invented at this point? Yes, scuba had been invented at this point, but actually to make these very deep dives, scuba wouldn't work. So you had to use uh, even the old style kind of hard hat gear, as it's called, the sort of iconic canvas suit and uh, bulbous helmet of the diver that we might recognize from uh, old movies. So scuba, well, it freed up divers to swim and be less burdened by gear than the old style uh, equipment. It, It didn't solve the problem of diving deeper or staying longer. Now, was George Bond, who was the father of Sea Lab, did he do any of the dives himself, or did he leave that to some of his his volunteers? One thing people loved about Dr. Bond was that they knew that he wouldn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself. And uh, he proved that on a number of occasions, including my book, a, a rather daring trial escape from a submarine from a deeper depth than, than anybody had ever done before. There was a daring escape from a submarine? What happened? So uh, one of the things they concerned themselves with was methods for escaping from submarines. Uh, You know, if you're having trouble in an airplane, you put on a parachute and jump out. And if you're in a troubled submarine that's gone down, uh, you also need a way to get out and get yourself to the surface. And there were a number of different methods developed. And and Dr. Bond arranged to do a test uh, in which he swam out of a submarine with basically just a life vest and a lung full of air to demonstrate that you could reach the surface from a depth of 300 feet just on that breath of air if you used the right technique. If you didn't, you could kill yourself very easily because the way the gas expands as you uh, rise through the water column. And I take it that he made it. And he made it. Not everybody thought it was such a good idea for him to try. He had one other uh, sailor with him who, who made the uh, escape. No one had ever made one from, let's say, a depth of less than half that. Now, you interviewed participants of the Sea Lab experiment, um, and you, you write in the book there was this great cast of characters. They must be in their 70s or even older by now. Yeah, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s. Of the surviving participants, what did they remember about the project? And there must have been some really harrowing moments. There were, and and what's surprising when you talk with them is they're a very nonchalant and sort of modest group. So uh, you have to pry a little bit to understand, for example, that when a Navy diver like Bob Barth was working with Dr. Bond at the laboratory, as I mentioned, well, he was one of the original human volunteers for these laboratory tests, which meant that he was going to be locked and sealed in a pressurized chamber with a couple of other guys, and they, it was basically like a camp out. They had enough food supplies to last them for a week or two. Was this on land, or was, was this in the ocean? This was on land. This is the laboratory phase before they take the prototype sea lab out to sea. So they are using a chamber that's you know maybe the size of, of like an RV, a very austere steel thing that can be pressurized to simulate the kind of pressurized environment in which they'd live if they were to live it on the ocean floor. And they're doing a lot of testing along the way to check physiological function to see how everybody was doing. So Bob will tell you that that was no big deal, and, you know, they believed in Dr. Bond, and if Dr. Bond said it was a good idea, they'd probably come out fine. But that was, uh, that's uh, putting it mildly. They had no idea, really, that they would come out fine. So the the target depth for C-Lab for this project was to go down to the continental shelf, which is about 1,000 feet down, um, which was about approximately 10 times deeper than anyone had dove prior to that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, depending on the, uh, there, there were a few, as I say, there were some extreme dives to, you know, perhaps half that depth. But again, the, the duration is the key. These were dives for minutes, and, and they're talking about going to these depths for indefinite periods, assuming that they could construct a base that was suitable to keep people properly uh, sheltered, much like the space station. 
only underwater. Did, did you talk to any of the um, participants who actually made it to that depth, and, and what did they say? Being underwater, is a, you're always in kind of a Murphy's Law situation. There's a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong and often do go wrong. On top of that, it, it's just a very difficult, very hostile uh, environment. The cold, the, the effects of the pressure, the uh, quirky breathing gear. And Scott Carpenter, who was the uh, second American to orbit the Earth during the space program, joined the C-Lab program and got to find out for himself just how difficult this environment was, even compared to what he had experienced training to be launched into space. And he would uh, talk about just the cold. You get to make a long dive, and that's great, but you come in to the Sea Lab habitat with teeth chattering, and, and even a long, hot shower often won't warm you up right away. And uh, he himself experienced the complications of using gear that is fed by what's called an umbilical, feeding the uh, gas to your breathing apparatus to give you a uh, longer ability to work in the water. But that also means you're sort of dragging around the equivalent of a garden hose, and that garden hose has a tendency to get sometimes snag on things or, or get kinked. And in, and in one instance, Carpenter was out working, uh, you know, maybe only uh, 50 feet or so away from the uh, entrance to Sea Lab, and his, uh, his gear just felt like he was sucking on a rock. He couldn't get any gas out of it. So imagine the uh, sensation of being unable to breathe and on the bottom of the ocean in the in uh, dark conditions, and uh, all there was for him to do was to swim like mad back to the uh, entry hatch of Sea Lab. But he really persevered. He ended up staying underwater for, what, 30 days? That's right. Scott Carpenter's mission, uh, one of them, was to really push the duration limits, and he stayed twice as long as most of the people involved with the project. What were the great technical breakthroughs of the project that led to advances down the line after Sea Lab was no longer? What was really the pioneering of what's known today as saturation diving. Saturation refers to the uh, process of, of allowing your body to become saturated with the gases that you're breathing. And what they were discovering was that with saturation diving and allowing for complete absorption by a body with the gases it's breathing, that while decompression would still be required, it could be postponed indefinitely. That was huge because all of a sudden divers were free to do day-long uh, shifts on the ocean floor that, in a way that had never been possible. So it sounds like, Ben, that Sea Lab actually accomplished quite a lot, and yet the premise of your book is that this was America's forgotten quest to live and work on the ocean floor. So at some point it was abandoned. What happened? It was a very low-budget operation, so there was less money going to it, and so where there's less money, there's less attention. And also the space race was in full force, and that's really where everybody's attention was focused. So, Ben, do you think we ever will reach this goal, or that was the, the dream of George Bond and others, to not just travel to the bottom of the ocean, but to actually live and work there? Well, there are still people who are interested in doing that. There are scientists who are interested in having that Jane Goodall-like ability to spend time on the ocean floor to make their observations. There are uh, underwater archaeologists who would love to uh, have the luxury of time that a habitat or a sea dwelling would give them to uh, excavate and work on their projects. So the interest is still out there. Ben Helworth, thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk about Sea Lab.
Well, I'll have to pick up a copy of Ben Helwart's book, Sea Lab, America's Forgotten Quest to Live and Work on the Ocean Floor. And let's not forget our quest here to find my telescope eyepiece adapter. I'm looking for it because you scientists need your gear after all. Yeah. Maybe it's in this box. Oh. You know, I'm a little worried, though, Molly, whether the world will continue to need scientists. Odd Lipson, a roboticist at Cornell University, has developed a computer program called Eureka, spelled E-U-R-E-Q-A, that turns data into equations that might give new scientific insight. So I'm a little worried. I mean, could this be the first software scientist? Well, some aspects of science and discovery could be replaced by computers. And I think that what is happening now is some of the more mundane tasks have already been replaced of data collection and data storage. What we're seeing now is that some of the more advanced modeling aspects are beginning to be replaced. Advanced modeling aspects. Tell me how that works. You you give a computer program a whole bunch of data and it comes back with a theory or equations. What does it do? What you see as a user is that you do give the, the machine some data recorded from a bunch of experiments that you've done, and the machine will think about that data for minutes, hours, or days, depending on the complexity of the phenomenon, and will come back with a handful of equations that describe the data. Now, these could be fairly simple equations that describe most of the complexity, or they can be complex equations that describe the data very accurately. And at the end of the day, you have to look at these equations and make sense of it and say, okay, out of this handful of equations, this is a really interesting model of what is going on, and I'm going to use that as a model going forward. Well, can you give me a concrete example of how you've used this? One of the more well-known examples of how this program works is this double pendulum. So that's a double pendulum is a pendulum hanging off of another pendulum. And it's a classic instrument used to demonstrate chaotic systems, systems that are very difficult to predict and have very complex behavior. And so we allow the machine to look at the trajectories recorded from a double pendulum. And in about a day, it came up with a bunch of equations. And so we looked at those equations, and it turns out that one of them is the equation of conservation of energy. There was also a conservation of momentum. There was also F equals MA, Newton's law of motion. And so there is, in this relatively small set of equations, there was everything you could ask. Everything you wanted to know about the the pendulum was right there. Well, now, you call this software program Eureka. I kind of wonder, Hod, if Eureka had been around at the beginning of the 17th century, Would it have been able to do what Isaac Newton did without standing on the shoulders of any giants? So not quite. At the end of the day, what this machine does is look at data and produces a set of equations. But what Newton did that was profound was not just produce these equations, but he also selected the variables to look at. So he thought, okay, let's look at velocity, acceleration, those kinds of things. And he also came up with the calculus that allow you to think about such things. And uh, he also gave meaning to that equation. And so these are all things that the machine right now does not do. Could you describe, Hod, in simple terms that even my wetware brain could understand how Eureka works? Uh, well, I'll try to give an idea. It, it starts by producing thousands of random equations. They are completely random, just numbers and variables and 
scientists and operators all jumbled together, and then it tests all these equations and see how well they match up against the data. Now, all of the equations are wrong, but some of them are just a little bit less wrong than others. And so it keeps those less wrong equations and produces copies of them with slight variations. And then it throws them back and evaluates these variations. And again, some of them will be a bit less wrong than their parents. And it will repeat doing that for millions of generations. It tests about 10 million equations per second, so it can go through quite a few. And within a short while, you get these interesting equations that match up with the data. This sounds very Darwinian, I must say. I think for many people it's surprising that this random process produces anything coherent at all. But it works, and it uh, produces pretty interesting things. What about feeding Eureka a lot of horse race data, or maybe stock prices? Couldn't it help you get rich? Absolutely. So right now there's about 30,000 users of this software, and I'd say half of them are using it to try to predict the stock market. (laughs) And uh, it's not something that we were able to do, and we tried Of course, like I said, this machine is not a magic uh, tool. You still have to think about what data to feed in. And I think that what makes successful finance applications are the people that can feed in the right kind of data. If you just put in raw stock market data, that's probably, uh, you're not going to find any pattern in that per se. But I'd say the other half of those thousands of users have been using it to do all kinds of science. Well, finally, then, I have to ask, maybe I should consider getting another job. I mean, it sounds like being a research scientist is an occupation that our little silicon buddies will be taking over in the next couple of dozen years. I think what will happen is the bar will be raised. So to look at a phenomenon and produce a mathematical model of it will no longer count as a big discovery. Okay, that a machine can do that. But that will raise the bar for all the scientists. It will mean that now, if you have a phenomenon, you have to come up with a new meaning to these models and in a way that produces new knowledge. So it will allow us to explore farther and deeper, but it will also raise the bar to what is considered a breakthrough or a deep insight. It will no longer be enough to just produce a model based on data. And many people right now do do that and consider that science. Well, Hod Lipson, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay. So according to roboticist Hod Lipson from Cornell, you might one day be replaced, Seth. Yeah, you sound like my high school girlfriend. Coming up, more scientific discoveries as we comb through this cabinet of wonders on Big Picture Science. Hey, is this a hydroelectric Bunsen burner? Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay. Okay, can you hand me that stepladder? Let's see what's on these upper shelves. Yes. We've gone through the bottom few. Okay, and we have quite a haul of stuff, vintage vintage scientific memorabilia to give to, I don't know, the Smithsonian's cold storage facility or something? Yeah. 
Well, I still haven't found my eyepiece adapter. It's Seth's Cabinet of Wonders on Big Picture Science. And what's in... Gosh, I almost fell off the stepladder. I would have fallen one foot to the ground. What's in this box here, Seth? Oh, where? Oh, that one? Oh, uh, well, that's uh, my science fiction paperback collection. This is it? I, th- I think you'd have more than two dozen science fiction books. Well, those are just the ones that feature relativistic time dilation in the storyline. Oh, who knew? Well, apparently a lot of science fiction writers. I mean, there are a lot of futuristic scenarios that first appeared in sci-fi and then actually came to pass. Yeah, like like what? Well, I mean, artificial intelligence. I mean, even 70 years ago, Isaac Asimov was talking about intelligent robots and how they should play nice with humans. Of course, there was Hal, the computer in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 story. Hey, look, here's a copy of author Robert J. Sawyer's book, Flash Forward. He's great. Arthur C. Clarke gave us this vision of HAL 9000 in the movie 2001. And today with, you know, our iPhones having Siri who will talk to us and answer our questions for us, we perhaps don't give enough credit to how visionary HAL was. HAL did natural language processing. HAL did human speech, human speech recognition, but also human speech generation. HAL could recognize faces, including in one scene in the movie, he recognizes charcoal sketches of people's faces. HAL defeated Frank Poole, one of the astronauts at a game of chess way before Garry Kasparov was defeated uh, by uh, Deep Blue. In fact, There was a wonderful book that came out in 1997, which is the actual birthday of Hal in the novel, 12th of January, 1997, from MIT Press called Hal's Legacy that defines how for the 30 years after 2001, the entire AI movement was pretty much driven by people trying to make Hal a reality. And it ended up being fact following fiction, fiction setting the template. Well, you have to say that Arthur C. Clarke was no slouch when it came to the real science either. I believe that he actually, in the 1940s, sort of sketched out how you could build and launch artificial satellites, which are, of course, very commonplace today. And he really was one of the first ones to work this out. Well, what was really significant is he worked out the notion of a geostationary orbit, a geosynchronous orbit, so that if you put a satellite 23,500 miles above the equator, it stays stationary over the same spot. And as he pointed out, if you have three such satellites deployed in the plane of the equator, you will have an ability to bounce communication signals around the entire planet. The paper, uh, which was called Extraterrestrial Relays, appeared, I think it was 1948, but it was certainly the 1940s, in a journal called Wireless World. And it was the seminal paper that gave birth to the notion. In fact, Clark, he passed away a few years ago, but he had a t-shirt that said, I invented the communications satellite, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, these guys who were successful in predicting the future, I mean, did they get anything out of it except bragging rights at parties? It, pretty much that's it. You know, science fiction is, in fact, an altruistic endeavor. We put notions out there. We're not in the business of patenting. We look aghast when an Apple or a Microsoft or a Research in Motion contends that they have some patent on some you know bit of business and nobody else can pursue that. We're in the business of throwing out ideas and watching with glee as they're turned into actuality. Is there a tendency, as a consequence of this, to make 
technologies in your novel that are just beyond where we are today on the assumption that these are more easily visualized by the public? I mean, instead of having, you know, a a galactic-wide empire in your story, you have something that allows us to get to the outer solar system a little quicker so we can colonize it. Yes, exactly. In 1965, Arthur C. Clarke coined something called Clarke's Law, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, as soon as you have magical technologies like warp drive or time travel or what have you, uh, you no longer really are writing science fiction. You're writing a species of fantasy. And that may have its validity, but it isn't part of the discourse of here we are now, where do we want to be in the future? So most of my colleagues like to do what my friend Gregory Benford, a great science fiction writer, calls playing with the net up. We play by the rules of physics. We pay rigorous attention to what's happening right now in science and technology. And we extrapolate not so far down the road that it becomes fantasy, anybody's guess, but a few steps down the road where it's a reasonable possibility of where we may be headed. Would you say, Rob, that these science fiction writers that do this are really predicting the future? Are they just being imaginative and uh, kind of luck out and are as surprised when these things come true as everybody else. You know what? Yesterday, myself, Ben Bova, Jack McDevitt, a couple of other science fiction writers were in conference call with the NASA Advanced Concepts Project Office trying to brainstorm future NASA activities. We're taken very seriously, those of us who are good at our craft and rigorous in what we do. But our job is not to predict the future. It is to throw out all of the reasonably plausible futures and let humanity choose, based on the scenarios perhaps that we've articulated, which one they want to make a reality. So, you know, nobody says that George Orwell's 1984 was a disaster because television sets that bring propaganda into our homes all day long with no off switches were not pervasive in 1984, the year, the actual calendar year, 1984. He saved us from that. It was a plausible future that we chose not to make a reality. Reality. Which one humanity chooses out of the ones that we put on the table, that's up to politics and it's up to society. When it turns out to be one that we can get behind and cheer, we're delighted. But just as often we do end up wringing our hands and saying, well, I told you so. <laughs> well, finally, Rob, in your book, The Terminal Experiment, you predicted a uh, 21st century phenomenon. What was that phenomenon? Now, that one I should have patented. I predicted YouTube. I predicted the rise of people producing sophisticated, I called it desktop television, the way as an analogy to desktop publishing, people producing their own complex video productions and uploading them to the world. And there being most of it, of course, being garbage, but some brilliance coming out of it, too. And I was very proud to get that one right. You uh, don't have any patent protection. I don't. But, you know, as I say again, science fiction writers are altruists. We're interested in the future. We're interested in humanity. Nobody, believe me, Seth, nobody in their right mind chooses to be a writer because they're interested in money. (laughs) Well, maybe you could uh, at least have a T-shirt made up. I invented YouTube. And all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Maybe I will get that. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Sawyer, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you. Robert J. Sawyer, award-winning science fiction writer. We are definitely not throwing out your books. We're putting them right back here in the cabinet. There you go. Okay, Seth, we have one more shelf here to go. 
Well, let's switch places. You get up here on the ladder. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Okay, I'm looking around up here. I'm afraid to run my fingers back over this shelf to find that telescope eyepiece adapter. And, oh. Ooh, what is that? Yeah, it's a snake. It's a rubber snake with some kind of ceramic head. That's really grown up, Seth. Well, that may be my niece's. I mean, if it is, it's a few years old. But then again, snakes are pretty old. I mean, they were they were around 130 million years ago. Yeah, were they around when the dinosaurs were around? They were, yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're reptiles. They're related. So are you afraid of snakes, Seth? Well, not terribly, but a lot of people are. You seem to be afraid of snakes, latex snakes. That's because it almost hit me on the head, and it has a ceramic fangs, ceramic fangs. <laughs> Well, you know, snakes have their own enemies, uh, toxic enemies, in fact. Here, can, can you grab this box? Because it's blocking my view here. Yeah, hang on. Okay, I got this box. Well, what kind of toxin would threaten a snake? One of the most deadly, actually, tetrodotoxin. And that's the poison that's found in pufferfish. It's also found in a creature that some snakes like to eat, rough skin newts. Oh, those are the little salamander guys. Yep. But researchers such as Chris Feldman have uh, discovered why some snakes are immune to the newt's poison. And why, by the way, I am not. If, Seth, you ate one of these newts, first you would find that your muscles would freeze, then you would find that your diaphragm had frozen, and then you would find that you couldn't get oxygen to your tissues anymore, which would start to ache, and if this newt is poisonous enough, you would keel over dead from asphyxiation. Wow. Wouldn't take long. It probably wouldn't take long, although there are populations of newts that have almost no poison and populations of newts that are extremely poisonous, where a single newt has enough poison to kill six to seven people. Have you ever had a close call with a newt or a snake while working in this uh, research area? It sounds like a dangerous area in which to uh, try and get a degree. (laughs) You'd be surprised. These newts are actually quite friendly. I think it's because they know they're so deadly, they can just sort of go about their business. And in all my time capturing newts, and I've probably captured several thousand I can only think of a couple of populations where the newt really got upset and was excreting its poison. My goodness. Now, let's talk about the poison. What is the toxin actually doing in in my body? Why does it cause muscles to freeze? Yes, so it's a neurotoxin, and it affects your nervous system and your uh, muscles. And at the molecular level, what it does is it binds to what are called voltage-gated sodium channels. I know that's a mouthful. And these sodium channels actually transport sodium from one side of a cell membrane to the other side of a cell membrane. And by doing this, they actually propagate or fire nerve impulses. By blocking these sodium channels, those nerve impulses, those electrical signals are essentially frozen. And that then freezes your nervous tissue and your muscular tissue. So it's sort of like turning off all the cell towers, if you will, for cell phones. I mean, it just shuts down the communication networks in somebody's body. Yes, that's a great analogy. Wow. Now, you know, when we think of poisonous creatures, I think most people will imagine snakes, spiders, not cute little newts. Can you describe what a little newt, I mean, how big are these guys? What do they look like? Well, they, they actually look like your sort of average size lizard, and they're sort of dull brown on top, but they've got a tomatoey red or bright orange bottom side. And this is called a warning coloration when you have a black on bright coloration. Think of a bumblebee or something like that's sort of common in the animal kingdom to have this high contrast pattern warn that you're venomous or poisonous. And what happens is they they typically keep the poison in their bodies. It's stored in these um, glands along their skin. But if you happen to, to be foolish enough to bother one, it will go into this warning display where it arches its back way up and exposes that bright orange coloration underneath, showing, hey, look at me, I'm bright, I'm poisonous, back off. 
And if you were still foolish enough to bother this animal, it would start to excrete the poison from those glands all over its body, and it looks like a milky white substance. And to me, it smells like burning rubber. Once you've done this, then you're in deep trouble if you, if you continue to bother that newt and you're foolish enough to ingest it. From your description, I guess I know enough not to, not to bite into one, but apparently garter snakes eat them regularly. Why is it that the garter snakes don't expire? Yes, this is really a fun research. The garter snakes appear to have evolved resistance to this toxin by simply modifying those voltage-gated sodium channels that I mentioned, um, which are the targets of the poison of, of tetrodotoxin. So, so they have a, some sort of a defense mechanism in their bodies. I mean, they've evolved this. This isn't something they have to learn or have to eat something special to have this defense? That's right. So it's an actual genetic modification to the protein that the poison attacks. But they actually also are able to detect how poisonous a newt is, and they can sort of modify their behaviors depending on how, uh, shall we say, hot or cold a newt is. So we have good evidence from lab studies that show that if a newt is really poisonous and a snake tastes that newt, that snake might back off and not eat that newt. That sounds like good news for the most poisonous newts. I exactly. Mean, <laughs> but why is it that not all newts are so poisonous that they never get eaten? Well, we actually don't know the answer to that question. And what we guess is that the poison is kind of costly to produce. And the reason that we think this makes sense is that in areas where the garter snakes don't exist, the newts are not very toxic at all. So, for example, if you start going into Alaska, where the garter snakes no longer live, that's outside of their distribution, the newts still live there, but they have almost no tetrodotoxin. So, in other words, there's kind of an arms race between the garter snakes and the newts, right? I mean, they, they... Yes. <laughs> Seth, you hit the nail on the head. In fact, we call this an arms race. The question that strikes me here as being a little bit perplexing is how do the garter snakes develop any sort of defense in the first place? You would think the first garter snake comes along, he has no defense against, you know, this toxin. Right. He eats, he eats a newton, and he's out of the gene pool. Yes. So, I mean, when did this happen? How did it happen? And how long did it take to happen? Boy, those are tough questions to answer, and we actually want to get to those questions, but at the moment we just don't know when did this happen and how did they enter the arms race. So we have guesses. And one guess is that they were forced into the arms race. It turns out that, that these garter snakes, when they tongue flick or they taste an amphibian, they have an innate response to attack that amphibian. And so probably what happened was there were some newts millions of years ago, and garter snakes started eating those newts, and they weren't very toxic. And so the newts started upping the production of tetrodotoxin, and the garter snakes responded. It seems weird. Why didn't they just ignore the newt? But as far as we can tell, it's almost impossible for a snake to differentiate a newt from a frog from any old other salamander. I'm almost afraid to ask this question, Chris, but how do you find out just how toxic these newts are? So what we can do is we can get a newt back into the laboratory and we take a simple skin biopsy of that newt and we grind up the tissue and from that we can pull out the poisons and then we can simply measure using simple chemical procedures, how much poison is in that newt's skin, and from that we can calculate out how big the newt was and how much poison overall is in that newt. Well, finally, Chris, how did you get interested in this particular line of study? I mean, uh, it's not that you were having newt sandwiches as a kid. Where, where, where did your interest in this come from? Well, I actually was interested in snakes ever since about the fifth grade when a friend of mine actually bought a garter snake as a pet and showed it to me, and I was just absolutely transfixed by the beauty and sort of mystery of this elegant animal moving without limbs. I thought it was just so fascinating. But then later on, I was actually in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and I actually saw a garter snake eating a newt. And I thought, what is this snake doing? He's going to die. 
and I captured both the snake and the newt, and they both survived the encounter. I decided to bring these uh, organisms back into the laboratory to figure out how did this snake survive this encounter, and how toxic are these newts. Chris Feldman, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Well, while biologist Chris Feldman studies snakes and newts at the University of Nevada in Reno, we are studying the contents of Seth's cabinet and remained amazed a new a newt yes a newt by all that it contains everything it seems except my telescope eyepiece adapter but well, wait 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 here it is i found it it's right behind these worm gears and under the used clarinet reeds what what are worm gears well don't you ever wonder how worms can move around <laughs> i thought they had automatics <laughs> still need gears anyhow at the Star Party Saturday night, I'll be able to show views of Jupiter to the four people who come up to my telescope with their three-month-old infants trying to look at Jupiter. It was well worth the effort then, Seth. I'm really glad we found your eyepiece adapter. And, and now I've got to think about what I'm going to put into this cabinet. While you think about that, I'm going to give thanks to our eclectic production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. Okay, I'm going to take this box out first. Your ears have been attuned to Seth's Cabinet of Wonders. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio for health reasons, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. No, seriously, what are worm gears? Well, I'm telling you, they you connect a motor to a, an ordinary gear with a worm gear. They're, they're very common. You can, you can buy them on the web if you need one. Can you give me a hand with this? Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. Careful, that's Hernia City there. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 